Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today I'm joined by Sadie Hurst, who is a food historian. Sadie is speaking to us from Lincolnshire in the UK. Sadie's job includes many roles dedicated to food history. Firstly, she's a collector of vintage and antiquarian cookbooks. Sadie speaks and demonstrates on food history at numerous events and runs historical cookery workshops. She writes on food for several newspapers and offers food reminiscing events for people living with conditions such as dementia. Now for 15 years Sadie was the co-owner of an award-winning butcher's shop. We can safely say that Sadie is someone who understands food history and heritage. Welcome Sadie. Thank you, Richard. It's very nice to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, so this is a a book podcast. So let's start by asking you to describe your collection of antiquarian and vintage cookbooks. Oh, gosh. Well, I've been collecting for um, getting on for 20 years now. And uh, as I speak to you, Richard, I'm, I'm surrounded by my antiquarian cookbooks and vintage cookbooks and pamphlets. And I've I've got thousands that I've, uh, the library I've built up over the years, but the, the really special antiquarian cookbooks, um, my earliest goes back to sort of mid 17th century. Uh, I'm very fortunate to have built up some fairly rare titles which are, are invaluable for my work as a food historian and writing and researching. Um, and then I had the butcher shop and did recreating, uh, recreating the recipes. So um, some of the titles I've got, my favourites, um, The Queen's Closet uh, opened, which dates from 1658. That's a really special book. Um, I've got ooh, another favourite of mine uh, is by Mary Catterby. And that's also um, uh, a very special antiquarian book. That dates from uh, the copy I've got, 1784. And that's an absolute treasure trove of, of recipes in there. Um, I've got a Kitchener cookery. That's a Georgian cookery book. Uh, that's interesting. I'll maybe talk about that a bit more later on because that's got a local connection to Sir Joseph Banks, which I found out recently, actually, when I was researching a, a workshop I was doing. Uh, so I'm looking at Elizabeth Raffald. Um, she was a, a best-selling cookbook author um, of the 18th century, along with Hannah Glass. They're two very... Um, popular uh, cookery books of the time. There are lots of editions of those and um, again an absolute treasure trove of recipes. So um, yes, I'm very fortunate that I've I've steadily built up my library over the years. It sounds really impressive. Is there one book that you you prize above all others? I think, well, the I think there's three, really, and for different reasons. The first book that I mentioned to you, The Queen's Closet Opened, that's a very precious one to me, simply because it's so rare. And uh, that dates back to, well, it's attributed to Henrietta Maria, who was the wife of Charles I. And uh, to just open that book and, and smell it and, and the pages are, are just um, gorgeous. It's a very tiny little book, but it's three books in one, actually. And I, I, I find that, fascinating and all the history and uh, the reason it was commissioned was it was a it was a propaganda royalist propaganda piece really it was nothing to do with the recipes it was to do with rebranding her as 
um, the perfect British housewife, if you like. Uh, she um, she wasn't terribly popular, um, and the time this book came out, um, she was in exile. Charles Charles first had already been executed, and this was a this was a rebranding exercise to make her more popular with the British public, um, and it worked to a large extent. And it was to smooth the way for her son Charles II to be restored to the throne. Because when this book came out, Oliver Cromwell. Um, was uh, in charge, and along with his wife, Mrs. Cromwell, there was another cookery book issued at the same time. Again, another bit of royalist propaganda. But I love all of, of that because um, it, it's a very special copy and so much history and a real snapshot of um, the politics at the time, uh, mid-17th century. Um, so that's precious. And there's, there's two others that are very dear to me because they're family cookery books. One is a little B-Row recipe book that belonged to my grandma, my late grandma, and the other one is a Warm's Everyday Cookery, and that came out a similar time to Mrs. Beaton's, a Victorian cookbook. Um, and it's not the actual book itself that's, that's special, it's uh, the handwritten recipes that are tucked away inside. They're all written on old Prudential Assurance Company cards and um, there's one for boiled fruit cake, which is a, a family recipe that was made for years, and it's all the bits that are tucked away inside it, and that, that belonged to my gran, um, so they're very precious to me, um, you know, for different reasons, really, two sentimental, and one because it's a rare uh, piece of um, history, and it's, it's, I'm very lucky to have it. The B-Row cookbook, it, it, was B-Row a company? Yes, B-Row... Um, it's uh, they're only um, really small cookery pamphlets, if you like. They're not a hardback book, but they, the B-Ray book um, came about in the early 1920s. There was uh, an entrepreneur called Thomas Bell, and he owned the Bell's Royal Works up in Newcastle upon Tyne, and he produced a self-raising flour. And at the time, self-raising flour was a bit newfangled. People were a bit suspicious of it because people tended to buy plain flour direct from the miller. And self-raising flour, people had to buy it from an independent grocer, and they were a bit suspicious. So he decided to um, uh, promote uh, this ingredient by uh, running a series of um, cookery um, exhibitions where you could buy your baked goods made with B-Row self-raising flour. Um, and originally, the company and the goods were called Bell's Royals. But when Edward VII died in the early 1900s, it became prohibited to use Royal in a brand name. So Bell's Royals was shortened to B-Row. That's why it's hyphenated. And it was, it, it's actually become the best-selling cookery book of all time. And you can still get them now. If you buy your bag of B-Row flour, you can write off to the company and, and send for your, your little B-Row book. Uh, so, but they're... Um, the old ones tend to be um, absolutely covered in uh, crumbs and lodges of ancient <laughs> ancient cakes and biscuits that have been made. Um, but they, uh, they're very popular when I go and do my talks. I think it's the B-Row book that people have the fondest memories of and can really relate to. And I think that they were given out in school cooking classes as well. So lots of people... Uh, have B-Row books and there's lots of different editions. They're into, I think it's the 42nd edition now, uh, but millions and millions of them have been produced. 
It's amazing how many different reasons there are for actually producing and publishing a cookbook. It's not just to make a few pence or spread news about certain recipes. Cookery books are always far more than just a collection of uh, techniques um, and a list of ingredients and ideas to create a new supper. There's, there's always a reason for a cookery book. It's, uh, they, uh, a lot of them are aspirational and they sort of pro- promise this transformative experience of, you know, you'll be a, a better housewife or you'll be a better mother or you'll be a better friend, a more sophisticated host, you'll be thinner, healthier. <laughs> so there's lots of reasons behind cookery books. A lot of them, of course, are to promote uh, a new ingredient, like the Little B-Ray books. Uh, the stork margarine, they were masters of producing cookbooks, they gave Beware a run for their money. Um, there's uh, another area is equipment cookbooks, so when you used to buy a new cooker, you would be given your cookery book that went with it. There's one um, that you used to get with your radiation cooker, and it's called the radiation cookbook, and I'm not so sure that would be a bestseller now, Richard, but... No, uh, I think that, not. Yeah. Uh, you would get um, Arga cookbooks if you bought a new Arga. Their equipment, um, also shops, lots of shops uh, like Fortin and Masons and uh, Harrods, you know, high-end shops, Selfridges. They all produce cookery books because it was a way of promoting the shop. Um, you know, there, there are countless reasons um, for producing cookbooks. And, and as you say, they're not just about the recipes. And, um, wartime cookery books as well. Um, again, Stork were very good at um, producing uh, cookbooks in that area. Uh, in, a, in that area, to produce um, recipes that you could use with your rations. Uh, so that's another area. McDougal's Flour. They also produce lots of cookery pamphlets. So there's there are millions and millions of different types of cookery books, and that's not even tapping into one of the biggest areas now. It's obviously the obligatory cookbook that goes with a cookery TV program. Also, community cookbooks, they're a huge area, um, you know, the fundraising cookery books. And they're a great um, resource for social history and and offer a snapshot of who was operating within that community at that time. You know, I've got um, a lot of Lincolnshire local ones, and it's surprising, especially when you've got the Uh, family names of the contributors of the recipes, how many of those families are still around. You get adverts in there, so it shows you who was in business at that time. And, of course, a lot of community cookbooks, people never really use them for the recipes. They buy them to um, do their bit for whatever the fundraising initiative is, and it's a way of consolidating a a community aim. Um, And also Women's Institute cookery books. Um, The Women's Institute who celebrated their centenary in 2015. So there was a long um, uh, legacy of WI, Women's Institute Cookery Books, and the early ones are really invaluable for looking at recipes that are synonymous with a certain area, regional differences, um, and they're fascinating in itself. Some people just collect one type of cookery book. Some people just collect cookbooks from the 80s and 90s. That makes me feel very old. <laughs> So that's that's almost classed as vintage now. Um, yeah. You know, which, uh, uh, that's you know, there's some people that just collect certain types. Some people only collect manuscript cookery books. Um, until you start collecting, um, yeah, and and really 
exploring different types of cookery books and people are always astonished when I go and do my talks at just how many there are because we have them in our homes but quite often people don't really consider them do they they're just sat in the kitchen and you know they're pulled off the shelf as and when they're needed but beyond that they're not really they're not really considered are they you're a food historian which sounds like an academic profession but you you're out there visually demonstrating food history can you tell us something about how you demonstrate rather than me coming at this from an academic route initially mine was from a collecting route mine started from my passion for um, recreating recipes and collecting cookbooks Um, and as you mentioned earlier on Richard my husband and I had a butcher shop a village butcher shop a very traditional Lincolnshire butcher shop and a lot of these recipes we recreated and sold them in the shop um, these dishes they were very popular and so uh, and I trained as a chef I'm a qualified chef so I came at it from a practical and a collecting viewpoint. The academic side for me has come along um, after that, whereas I I was collecting and making these dishes. Uh, That led on to me uh, writing for publications because people are fascinated and interested in food history and local dishes, which in turn led on to the talks and me visiting and working with community groups. That in turn led on to... Um, doing workshops and demonstrations. So I approach that from two, two sides, really. The beginning of a workshop, I would um, do a presentation based on what type of workshop it is, whether it's Georgian or medieval or, you know, depending on what area I'm um, working to, uh, uh, with Heritage Lincolnshire, predominantly, which is a local charity, um, and I do a lot of work with them on um, different workshops depending on what project they're working on and then uh, I will do a practical demonstration afterwards or I'll do a workshop where it's actually hands-on cookery with a group of students and everybody gets to have a go at making and recreating uh, an historical dish and I think that I've benefited from coming from a background where I am a, a chef and I've run a food shop um, so I've got, I can bring those skills to it, along with um, independent research um, that I've done on my own. And I ha- that's now being consolidated because I, I actually start a master's degree in heritage full-time in, in two weeks at a university in Lincoln. So I've, I've come at it at a very unusual route, probably not a traditional food historian route. Um, but um, I think people... Uh, enjoy being able to not only have a presentation and learn a bit more about it on that side, but also they'd like actually having a go at making these dishes and tasting food from the past. So if you are demonstrating Georgian recipes, are you able to get all of the ingredients? The ingredients have to be accessible. What I don't want to do with um, a group of students is choose a dish that has really obscure ingredients in there and then they're not able to recreate it on their own at a later point because everybody gets a recipe sheet so for example i did a a georgian uh, workshop um at a um at a, uh, a georgian house called south ormsby um estate which is on the lincolnshire walls beautiful house georgian architecture and it was again with heritage lincolnshire uh, and I chose uh, a recipe that 
seem to be in a lot of my Georgian area, sorry, Georgian era cookbooks, which um, is called um, snow apples, and this involved um, wrapping a apple, or stuffing an apple, wrapping it in pastry, and then covering it in meringue to make it look like a snowball. I mean, they'd be perfect for Christmas. They look very, they look very festive, and they're really good fun to make. Uh, but all of those ingredients were accessible and, and easy to get to. And people, I try and do a, a choose a dish that can be um, suitable for all abilities. So, uh, you know, from an experienced cook to somebody who's just coming along to try something new. Um, so that, that was great fun. And the other thing that we made was butter because, um, you know, we're quite um, re- removed from processes like that not many of us i think make our own butter anymore and so people are fascinated by that process and how you can go about doing it because essentially all you need is a a pot of double cream or or heavy cream as you would call it and and a whisk and a bowl and that's all you need to make your own butter Um, and children like making that as well so yeah i find that hugely rewarding so the people that come along to your workshops why are they so interested in the heritage, the legacy of food? So, with all the emotional um, elements of food history and food memories, I think also um, there is a, uh, a growing interest in um, baking generally. I think programs like the Great British Bake Off have seen a huge resurgence of younger people baking and becoming interested in producing their own food. There's um, uh, all sorts of programs and books that have come about on the back of these sort of baking programs because baking went through a phase of not being terribly fashionable um, a few years ago and I think um, Great British Bake Off just celebrated 10 years but there are people now that find it very rewarding. So one of your um, talks is called Off the Beaten Track and that's obviously a reference to Mrs. Beaton, the, the famous English yeah. cook. Um, what would you cover in that talk? Um, I talk about, well, first of all, I take a collection of cookery books with me. Um, so I do a nice display of uh, my antiquarian cookbooks and cookery books through the ages and also items of kitchenania, uh, which um, things like a butter churn and um, sort of old um, wooden moulds and butter packs and things like that, cookery items. Uh, that represents uh, cookery techniques that we don't engage in anymore, and people love looking at all of those. But I start by um, talking about uh, cookery books becoming a sort of family bible, if you like, that they um, sometimes the actual original nature of the book almost gets lost because of the extra material that's stuffed in within the pages of cuttings out of magazines or um, a recipe that's been. Uh, written down from a friend if you've gone for coffee and all this added material that's stuffed within the pages to the point where the spines are almost breaking. I talk about how we interact with cookery books very differently to other forms of literature but quite often um, they'll have annotations and scrawls all over them. I've got a a book that's a manuscript cookery book that belonged to my late mother-in-law and there's a recipe in there for ginger butterscotch and she scrawled across the pages, rubbish. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we wouldn't dream, I would hate, of doing that to other uh, types of book, but quite often um, I'll find them with 
recipes that have been adjusted and ingredients crossed out like mixed peel and things like that but we we have a very personal relationship with cookery books and I, I talk about that I also talk about um, how the pages uh, have tangible evidence entombed within them of, of recipes that work in the form of splodges and crumbs and um, invariably it's the chocolate cake pages and the biscuit pages with the recipes that seem to get the most, uh, the most used. Sorry, Sadie, I love the word kitchenalia. Isn't that a wonderful word? Uh, it is a wonderful word, yes. It's uh, antique kitchenalia. That's um, it's quite alarming, really, because I, uh, I'm an avid collector of cookery books, and it's now sort of extended into kitchenalia as well, of collecting these, uh, these old kitchen items. And uh, uh, I don't have enough space in my house. I need to stop. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, but people just, you know, they really like handling them, and they're very evocative, you know. People will come and have a look after my talk, uh, look at all these items after my talk, and it reminds them of their childhood, and like, oh, my gran had one of those, and, you know, they're, they're great talking points, and, and people um, love seeing these items and being able to have a look at them. And also with the cookery books, there was one I, I took to a, a talk last year, which is a Hamlin cookery book, and um, Mary Berry was um, the lady who uh, compiled it. This is back in the 70s. And this lady came up and she said, oh my goodness, you've got this book. I lost my book years ago and it's got my daughter's favourite ice cream recipe in there. And she said, can I write the recipe down? I said, yes, of course you can. She said, oh, my daughter's 50 this year and I'll be able to make this for her birthday and she'll be over the moon. And you know, it's just very, uh, you know, people's memories, food memories can be very strong and um, they... They just love seeing these items, and it, and it gives me great joy going out and being able to share them. Okay, so um, our, our final question. Um, we ask this to all our guests, but what book or books are you currently reading? But at the moment, I like a good Scandi drama. I, I like a, a Nordic noir thriller. So I've um, I just started reading Joe Nesbo's latest book, Knife which okay. is a nice bit of light reading. So that's, that's my light, uh, light relief from, uh, from all the cookbooks uh, and my reading list for uni that's coming up. Sounds good, sounds good. Uh, okay, so that's all we have time for this week. I want to give a huge thank you to Sadie Hurst for joining us. Sadie is a food historian in Lincolnshire in the UK. Now you can learn a lot more about what Sadie does by visiting her website. Her website is sadiehurstfoodhistory.co.uk. Sadie is spelt S-A-D-I-E and Hurst is spelt H-I-R-S-T. So sadiehurstfoodhistory.co.uk and you can learn more about her, her workshops and all the work she does in food history. Uh, so thank you, Sadie, so much. My pleasure. Thank you very much for talking to me, Richard. And thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time.